little, a, a girl named Dana Stevens, she's an author. She tells a story that, that I thought was really cute being a parent. It may not really move you as much, but she's talking about her, her five-year-old niece named Michaela. And her niece and, and her, her brother and sister, Michaela's parents, uh, went out to see the grandparents. And the grandparents lived rurally. They lived kind of out in the country. Uh, and Michaela was a five-year-old who had grown up in the city. And so they go out to the country, and next to Grandma and Grandpa uh, are some people that have a farm, and they've got, they've got cornfields and things like that. And so the, the Michaela's parents talked to the neighbors and said, man, could we come out and, and help anything? They said, why don't you come out and help us, you can help us pick corn? Because we wanted our five-year-old, they wanted the five-year-old to have that experience of what it's like. Because growing in the city, you don't get to see things like that. And so they got out and got out into the fresh air, and they got the five-year-old out, and they're they're, they're picking corn, ears of corn, and mom and dad are using it as this like spiritual time to talk to their five-year-old about how God provides. And, and for mom and dad, it's this picturesque moment of being out in the country, a family memory. And the five-year-old likes it at first, but like most five-year-olds, about five minutes in, it's hot outside and it's dirty and there's bugs and things like that. And the five-year-old looks at her mom and dad and she goes, she's getting the corn. She goes, you know, you know you can buy this stuff in a store, right? Like tells her parents like they don't know. And, you know, makes a memory for them. If you have kids, it's always, you know, you, you kind of connect that because you've had kids say things like that. But I read that story and I thought, man, that, that reminds me so much of what the church is like. And I'm not just talking about First Baptist here. If you go to another church, your church is probably like it. I know ours is in a lot of ways. Most churches are. In fact, a lot of us in this room are this way in that, that we think sometimes that the works of God just happen and, and we're not supposed to get our hands dirty. We don't, we don't go and pick the corn. The corn just shows up at the store. But there's somebody out there that is working the cornfield. And we, we come to church and we come to worship and, and we're just, we just assume that some people out there are going to come in here. We just assume some people who are far from God are going to end up in a relationship with God. We don't know how it happens. We're not going into the field to do it. We're not going to work. We just show up and go, yeah, somebody else does this, and it shows up at the store. Last week, we talked about missions as we started. The, we were in the second week of the series, Radical. And, and we said there are 4.5 billion people on this planet that don't have a relationship with Jesus in any way, shape, or form. There's a billion of those that have never even heard his name. And we talked last week about some of the difficulties of going on a mission trip. We talked about it costs money, and it costs us time, and we have to put selfishness aside and, and step into selflessness. And, and we talked about that that, that, is, that that is difficult. It's not natural for us. It's not necessarily easy. But there's 4.5 billion people. And sometimes when you go on a trip, you go on a mission trip, sometimes you go and you invest all that money, you put that time in, the energy, and you walk away from it, and you don't feel like you did anything. There's a guy named Dr. William Leslie. His story starts 100 plus years ago. In 1912, Dr. William Leslie was a uh, doctor, a, a medical doctor, and he went as a medical missionary to a place that was called the Congo in Africa. And he went because he loved uh, African people and he wanted to tell them about Jesus. And so he's taken his skill set of medicine and he was going into that country to help heal people and at the same time tell them about Jesus. He lived in the Congo for 17 years. Now, again, this is in the early 1900s. So you can imagine 
I mean, Africa is not as industrialized, or lots of its places are not as industrialized as America. A hundred years ago, it was even a more difficult place to live. He spent 17 years of his life there telling people about Jesus, trying to spread the gospel, and he came home after 17 years and told people nothing happened in 17 years of ministry there. He never saw any fruit of anything that he did. He only lived nine more years after he came home, and he lived a discouraged life that 17 years of his life in the Congo had been wasted, that he couldn't point to anybody who knew Jesus. Let me fast forward to 2010. A guy named Eric has heard, works with a missionary uh, group and has heard stories that, that there's, there's a, a group of people that live in that region. I don't, I don't even think it's called the Congo anymore. I think it's got his name changed. There's a group of people there that, that we think may have, they may have had an exposure to the gospel, but they are so deep into the jungle, it's difficult to get there. In 2010, with all of our transportation and all of our technology, you had to fly to the country, then get on a Cessna plane, a little small one, and fly two and a half more hours to a little dirt airstrip, get off the plane there. They had to hike a mile to a river, a large river, had to get in hollowed out canoes, because it wasn't like you just went and rented a boat, canoes that just hollow out and go across the half mile river, and then hike 10 more miles to the jungle to get to this people group that they thought might have heard about Jesus and wanted to kind of lean into that and continue telling the gospel to them. What they, got, what they found out when they got there is that there had been a reproducing church in the jungle for years. Not only was the village that they met a village full of believers, but there were eight more villages through that jungle spread out over 34 miles that had all come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Each of the villages had their own gospel-like choirs, even though they didn't call them that, and they wrote their own praise music, and they would have worship or, or praise like get-togethers and have contests over who could write and sing the songs best, and they did it village against village. In the midst of this 34-mile trek, they found a stone cathedral in one of the villages that was kind of centrally located that could seat a 1,000 people to come and to worship. They used a French Bible, and so there were people that knew French inside that, those tribes, and the few people that knew French were the ones that were tasked with teaching the Bible to all of those people in those villages. They had no clue, because it's such a remote people group, that all of this had happened. And when they began to discover and begin to trace back, how did this work of God happen? It was traced back to Dr. William Leslie, who had been there almost 100 years before. And his story was still told to the villages of the man who had come and heal people, teach children about Jesus, and teach kids how to read and write. Sometimes you go on a mission trip and you don't get to hear how it all ends. You go and you walk out and you go, man, I don't know anything, anything happened. Save you the story because we have time. In Poland this year, uh, I, I heard from the missionaries I'd never known a story about six years before when we had went, six or eight years before, and how our group had transformed their local church. I'd never knew it. It happened after we left. Sometimes, you just, sometimes though, it's the flip side. Sometimes you go on a mission trip and it is... It's incredible. I mean, it's great experiences. Sometimes that's dangerous too. There's a church that's in outside the Atlanta area, and they took 16 people on a mission trip to Brazil, a city like right outside of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. 16 people, and they went in and they trained 600 Brazilians how to share the gospel, how to tell people about Jesus. 
And so those 600 Brazilians and those 16 Americans, they, they were on a two-week mission all in around the area. They went into schools. They went into people's homes. They went into a chicken processing plant, like to tell employees about Jesus. They were invited in. They had rented out a gymnasium, and 2,000 people came and heard the gospel. Out of those 2,000 people, 125 people that night said, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. When they were in some of the schools, during one of the week, five different schools, 83 Students and teachers said, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. At the end of their two-week trip, over 1,500 people had said, I want to follow Jesus because of that experience. Now, that's different than leaving and going, nothing happened. Those people left, and they came home and told a story about 1,500 people who would breathe eternally, meet Jesus face-to-face when they die. That, they come back high five and everybody excited. But you know what? Sometimes that's dangerous. Because Jesus didn't ask us to just get people to accept Christ as their Savior. He calls us to make disciples. So what happens when 16 people leave and there's 1,500 new believers? Who's discipling them? Now, I know that church, and that church probably did well connecting with local partners. But that does happen on mission trips. We do part of it, and then we have to go home, and we can't finish it. Sometimes, sometimes missions can be difficult. I want you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 9 because we're going to see what Jesus has to say about a solution to those problems of what do we do about people knowing Jesus? What do we do if nothing happens when we go on the mission trip? What what happens if so much happens we can't do anything? In Matthew 9, Jesus, uh, man, he gives us something that is transformative to the life of a disciple. Look in verse 35. We're going to read a couple of verses here, but I'm just going to stop along the way and talk about each verse. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, which was like their churches, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That's kind of, I mean, that's a picture of what we expect Jesus to do, right? Jesus goes to a bunch of different cities. He's traveling. He's going. He's teaching. And then he's doing the thing that really kind of is cool to us. He's healing people. It says he's healing every disease. I mean, people are lined up, and he's like, you know, and you have no more leprosy, and you have no more tuberculosis, and you have no more. And people are being healed. Afflictions are being gone. Jesus is doing this ministry that meets people's needs. I mean, their physical, heartfelt needs. That's an important part of missions. I mean, we're, some of you guys that are in high school, you're about to go do that. High school mission trip's coming up. In fact, the deadline's Friday if you're going. And we're going to go up to Rowlett, Texas, where a tornado came through the day after Christmas. Now, see, for us, we forget things like that. In the back of your mind, you go like, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I remember a tornado hitting the Metroplex. The day after Christmas, that's what it looks like. I'm going to let you see a quick kind of two-minute video of that. Watch this video.
old that video. It was like a nine, ten-minute video. I just edited it down. But we're going to go, and we're going to help people's lives be restored from an F4 tornado that wiped out about a half-mile by four-mile-wide stretch of Texas. If you, if you want to know how big that is, it's about from where we stand to about halfway to Wolf Ranch. That's about a half mile. Halfway between here and Wolf Ranch, half mile. And then go about from here, probably, I didn't measure it, probably to Eastview High School, four miles maybe. An F-420 that wiped it all out. Millions of dollars of damage. Thirteen people lost their lives. I mean, people's lives, we, we've moved on day after Christmas, but there's people that, and they have felt physical needs. And so some of our high schoolers are going to go up and they're going to serve those needs. And that's what Jesus did here in this passage of Scripture. In his day, that was the healing. That was the uh, getting rid of people's afflictions. It's that physical ministry. But the physical ministry is always done so that we can do spiritual ministry. Look back in verse 35. Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, and here's the most important part. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was healing people so that he had the opportunity to get their attention and tell them about spiritual things. Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't do us any good. We're not really benefiting somebody if we've gone and, and fixed up their house and they're going to live in a nicer house for the next 40 years and then die and spend an eternity apart from God. Right? I mean, that, that is just no good for them to be eterni- eternally in a place called hell longing for the house that we built in Rowlett. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not the end goal. The goal is spiritual transformation but physical transformation is the open door. That's why there's one guy in the Scripture. Some of you remember the story. Jesus, uh, they bring this, this guy who's paralyzed to Jesus. He's on a mat. He can't move. And they lay him in front of Jesus. What does he want? To walk, right? And Jesus sees him, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the guy's probably like, cool. <laughs> you know, not why I came. You know, I'm laying on a mat. I mean, that's great and all, but I want to walk. And, and Jesus used that moment. He ends up healing the guy and making the guy walk. But he does, he does that. The primary, the primary thing was your, your spiritual life. And so we go and do missions, the healing and the restoration and the physical ministry, in order to let people hear about Jesus and the kingdom of God things. That's what, that's what really matters. That's the most important thing. And look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds... He's been healing people. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we don't know that anything crazy is happening. I mean, from what we know, it's a normal day in the life of one of the cities where Jesus is visiting. I mean, students are going to school or whatever they did and going home and helping their parents. Moms and dads are working, paying bills. It's just a normal life. The only thing different from them and us is they did have the Roman government over them. But from what we know, it wasn't really an oppressive regime. I mean, it was inconvenient for sure, and, and they had to do things that they didn't like, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad. And Jesus looks at them, and the Scripture says he has compassion for them, and he looks and he says, these people harassed and they're helpless. And, and we ask the question like, well, who's harassing them? What, what's happening? It's not the Romans. It's not a person. Jesus goes on, he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're just wandering. It's not a physical harassment. They're having spiritual issues. They don't know who God is. They don't have a relationship with them. They, they're purposeless. The harasser in this passage is not a person. It's the devil. It's the enemy 
who hates people, who Jesus said wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus sees these people just like, I mean, Jesus could walk into your school and see your schoolmates, and he would have compassion for them, and he'd go, man, it's like they, they're a sheep without a shepherd. The enemy's harassing them. They're helpless. They don't even know what to do to find freedom. They don't know what to do. They don't even know what it's like to live a life without the shackles of sin around them. They don't know what it's like to have an eternal purpose, and that bothers Jesus. He has compassion for them. Compassion, the root word from compassion comes from the word passion. It moved him. And and if I can throw out numbers like 4.5 billion people that don't know Jesus, that ought to to bother us. It ought to move us. Man, what what can I do? It doesn't, though, because we don't know their names. When I say 4.5 billion, but you do know their names because they sit next to you in English. And they sit next to you in math. And God has compassion. He's moved for them, and we should be too. It should bother us. And Jesus' response is this. And here's kind of where we're landing tonight. Verse 37. He sees these people. He has compassion for them. He's bothered by it. So he turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of need out there. There's a lot of spiritual need growing up. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a lot of work to be done, but we don't have a lot of people to go do it. There's 4.5 billion people who need Jesus, another billion that need to be introduced to him for the first time. But who's going to go? There's not a lot of people. In the verse 38, he says, therefore, because of that, here's our bottom line. Pray. Pray earnestly. Not like, God, thank you for this food. Cool. And God, help people. Like, what was that country? The Congo. Yeah, cool, God. And, and traveling mercies and hedge of protection and all that stuff that I heard Grandma say. There, no, you pray earnestly. Seriously, to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. Isn't that incredible? Jesus sees all his disciples who could go meet this need. And surely they do, and they have been doing it. But Jesus reminds them, he says, you know what? You, you've got to start praying that God would send people to those who don't know him. We talk about loving God and loving people. You and I, we love God and we love people by, here's one way we do it, by praying that people would come to know Jesus as their Savior. They'd come to become followers of Jesus. We are supposed to go. We talked about that last week. That's a no-brainer. But we can't go every day. I mean, if God calls you to full-time missions, you're going to go with your life. But God's going to call some of you to be a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or a dentist. Some of you going to call you to be a business person. He might call you to be a stay-at-home dad or a stay-at-home mom. He might call you to be a pastor of some sort. And you're not going to be able to go to the nations like we talked about last week. But every one of us in here can pray to the God of the harvest that he would raise up laborers in the field. That's what happens when, when Dr. William Leslie comes home from the Congo and he goes, man, all of the stuff I did was fruitless. You know what he still can do when he's home for those nine years instead of being discouraged? He can pray that the God of the harvest brings people to follow behind him to do the work of ministry. When the church from Atlanta leaves and there's 1,500 new believers, and, and man, what do we do? We want to disciple them, but we do have to go. We start praying, God, raise up some people. Now, they train 600 people, so they probably have done that. We pray, God, bring some people. What do you do about people in your school or a family member that doesn't know Jesus, do you share Jesus with them? You absolutely should. 
But what you can do right now if they're not sitting next to you is pray that the God of the harvest puts laborers around them, people other than you, to share the good news as well. Tell them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in their life. To tell them about salvation. I mean, that's simple. Every one of us can do it. But I'm going to tell you right now, the the, the takeaway, the radical commitment that we're asking you to do is going to be to pray. And that sounds so easy. But it's not going to be. You know how I know? And I don't say this. I, I don't say this to shame you at all. I'm saying this to encourage you because it hasn't happened, but it can. And it's not going to happen tonight because I don't want anybody doing it out of guilt. But here, here's, my, here's my concern. Almost every Wednesday night before you leave this room, I say something. I say, hey, if any of you would like to pray for some of your friends, hang around for 10 or 15 minutes. We're going to gather right here and we're going to pray for our friends. And sometimes there's 10 or 12 of us on a, on a big night. Sometimes there's four or five of us. Sometimes there's none. There's me. I'm just concerned that if the people you know by name don't gather 10 minutes of our time to pray that they would come to know Jesus, I'm not sure the commitment to pray for the countries, which is what we're going to ask you to do, is ever going to happen. Because you don't know the countries. Because you don't know the 4.5 billion people. I don't either. That this is a big number. But if we won't pray for the people that we know and we love and we sit next to in school, are we going to pray for the nations? We should. Because last week, I mean, we said, because Jesus has a heart for the nations, I should too. It ought, it ought to bother us. It ought to move us to compassion like it moved Jesus to, to say, God, there are people who don't know you, people in my school, and there's people in, in Uganda, and there's people in, in Argentina, and there's people in Moldova. And, and God, I don't even know anything about them, but I know that they need laborers to come up and to harvest the field to go and and share the good news that you died on a cross for their sin, that you defeated death when you came back and and resurrected and you're alive today and want to live in our lives to show us the way. God, I want people to have that. Can we just get real for a second? I'm going to go off course. I don't even know what my notes are. I just want to talk to you from my heart. I meant to this, but we're talking about radical Snowboarding may not be radical for y'all. This is called blown out ACL for me. Slalom skiing, I can't do. This I can't do. Mountain biking, I pay a car payment. I'm not getting on a mountain bike. Scuba diving, that's where sharks are. I have no desire to do it. I'll kill myself on the motorcycle. We try to get some things that picture radical sports, kind of that extreme sports. People that hang glide, those people are crazy. I mean, but some, some people love that. They love that adrenaline rush. We, we, we went with this idea of radical because we've asked you to do some things that, that do feel radical. To say, hey, read the Bible. I mean, come on. This is a pretty thick book. And you're doing other things as well. And the print, I mean, it's in four columns in small print. It's a big book. And to say, hey, would you read that over the course of 15 months? Or would you take 11 months worth of devotionals? That's, you know, 300 some odd days. 30 days would you spend in the Word so that you can saturate your mind with the Word of God? That is a big deal. That, that's, a lot of us haven't done it. But at some point, when does that stop becoming radical and start becoming normal? I mean, in reality, this series shouldn't be called radical. We're saying, hey, we're not, we're not even saying read the Bible for the rest of your life. We're saying, hey, read the Bible once. Read the Bible for 330 days over the course of 15 months, and we're calling that radical. You know what the series should be called? Expected. 
The series should be called The Norm. Because that's what disciples do. I mean, that's, last week, and, and maybe, I wasn't, maybe I wasn't really clear, we talked about going on mission. And we said the commitment that we're making is to leave our city to tell someone about Jesus. We talked about staying in Jerusalem, at home and doing it. We said, hey, would you make the commitment to go outside of your city sometime over the next 15 months on a mission trip to tell someone about Jesus? I'm just hoping I wasn't clear last week because when I got into the office and we pulled up the numbers of people between you and your parents that said, yes, I will leave my city at some point in the next 15 months to tell people about Jesus, there were seven. At this moment, there's like 15. Here's the crazy thing. There's 20 high schoolers signed up to leave the city and go to Rowlett to tell people about Jesus. So maybe I just wasn't clear, but that should not be radical to go, I will go on a mission trip. I, I will, in the next, not even this summer, but before next summer, you've got a year to plan. In the next 15 months, I will save up the money. I'll be selfless to go tell people about Jesus because Jesus told me to in Matthew 28 and Acts 1 that we talked about last week. That shouldn't be radical. It should be called normal. Praying for the nations. Praying for our friends. Shouldn't be crazy. Guys, I'm not saying this to shame you. Like I said, I probably didn't communicate well last week. That, I mean, there's no reason why seven, 20 people signed up for high school mission trips so far and only seven did. I, I must not have been clear. That's on me. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to encourage you to tell you this. If you want to know how to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus that has a radical experience with him, then you're going to have to start making some of these things normal and we're giving you the steps of how to do it. That's the encouragement. Here's how you do it. Make a commitment to go on a mission trip. Make a commitment to read the scripture, to saturate your mind with the word of God. And tonight's radical commitment, if we can call it that, again, I just probably need to rename everything, call it the norm and put up like a couch as a state, you know, a couch in an Xbox or something, is to pray for the nations. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. There are, by my best count, somewhere around 230 countries on this planet. Over the next 15 months, as a follower of Jesus, when Jesus has told us to pray that the God of the harvest would raise up laborers, would you commit over 15 months to pray for 230 countries? Now here's, we're going to give you the tools of how to do it. There's a website that we're going to put up and I'll give it to you and we'll put it up on Radical Prayer. It's called Operation World. And you can just go to operationworld.org I could have printed this off, but I didn't want to print you off the countries because I don't want you to just pray for Afghanistan. You could do that. God, send laborers to Afghanistan. Done. But Jesus told us to pray earnestly. So on this website, which you can put as a bookmark on your phone, or you can put as a bookmark on your computer at home, or you can print off a few at a time. You can actually order a book. That's what I'm using. When you click on Afghanistan, it's going to give you a little bit. It's not a lot. It's not like a, a chapter. It's like bullet point type things. Here's how you can pray for Afghanistan. Here's what God is doing in Afghanistan right now. Here are the needs, and you can pray earnestly for that country. It shouldn't be difficult. Even if you did a country a day, you'd finish well before 15 months was done. If you sat down and prayed for five countries at one time, and you did that a couple of times during the week, you'd breeze right through this. It's not difficult. It's just that you're going to make a commitment to be a disciple. 
This is what I want you to get. I've said it multiple times. I'm not asking you to do this. Jesus himself said, pray that the God of the harvest would raise up laborers. It's not the ask from me. I'm just trying to connect the dots from what Jesus said to people who call themselves disciples so that you can start being a disciple. Does that make sense? That, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. So we're going to put these up here in a moment. We're going to have a, a time. There's only one application. It's pray for the nations. You're going to do it or you're not. But I want to tell you this last story, and then we're going to move into a time of just kind of a reflection for a couple minutes. A couple years ago, I got to go on a cruise. I got some of the greatest parents in the world. Every other Thanksgiving, my parents take my family, my brother's family, and they, they, do this all, we get, they pay for a vacation around Thanksgiving. We've gone to Cabo San Lucas, Cancun, back to Cabo San Lucas. We went to Disney World this year. It was fantastic. A couple of Thanksgivings ago, we went on a cruise. Hey, who's been on a cruise before? Anybody been? It's pretty cool, right? I mean, like, no, I loved it. Like, and I had little kids, which made it even kind of, but I mean, here's the, it's like all the food you could, you could eat. Like, like there's an ice cream bar, and at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there's ice cream, and at 10 o'clock at night, there's ice cream. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, there's ice cream. If you're still up, they've got a pizza place. It's just like made-to-order pizza. And there's food all the time. There's, there's a swimming pool so you can swim basically on the ocean. I mean, it's, it's nuts. I mean, you think about it. We've been to these dinners. and They'd sit you down, and, and, and they'd come, and the waiters bring you all kinds of stuff that, like, you've never tried, like, stuff rich people eat. Like, I'm not going to lie. They had escargot, that snails. I tried it. You got to. I mean, like, it's weird. You're on a cruise. You got to do it. It's so cool. This, this is, it's all about you on the cruise. They bring out, like, like for, for dessert one night, like that molten chocolate cake, like from Chili's, the ice cream. First night, my wife, Amanda, she loves that. She was like, I want that. The next night, it's not on the menu. She says to them, she's like, y'all still have that? They're like, oh, yeah, every night. By the last night, they didn't even ask. They just brought her the molten chocolate cake with the ice cream. Off menu, but they had it. So we're laughing about that. We're talking to our waiter. And we're like, that's so cool. I mean, that, like, it's not on the menu, but they're making for us. And, and, and I said, like one night, I said, man, I'm hoping creme brulee shows up on the menu because that's my thing. And, and the waiter told me, he's like, creme brulee is not on the menu. And I was like, oh, dang, that'd be great. The last night, waiter comes out, creme brulee. And I'm like, I thought this wasn't on the menu. He goes, it's not. I told the chef you liked it, so he made it. Like, are you kidding me? Can I live here? Like, this is crazy. I just asked my wife just now, hey, you going to pick me up dinner? She's like, no. This guy's making creme brulee off menu. I go in every day to my room. All my towels fold into, like, animals. I got a gorilla one day, a swan the next day. And I kid you not, it was almost creepy. Every time I walk out of my door, I like walk out my door and like within like three seconds, there's like a guy assigned to like our cabins and he's like, may I help you with something? I'm like, just going to get some ice cream because it's open all the time. He's like, okay, let me know if you need anything. And I'd like, I remember like, you know, you'd like, I'd like forget something. Oh man, I need to go get something. I walk back to my room, grab it. I'd open the door again to go back and be like, could I help you now? And like, where did you come from? Like, I mean, like you weren't there when I walked into my door like 30 seconds ago. It was like, it was almost creepy, but they're just there. Anything you need. Went to Watermark Church last week and they used this illustration as a fantastic one. And they said, you know what? For a lot of us, our spiritual experience is like that cruise ship. We show up expecting great things. 
expecting people to wait on me, expecting to have great Wednesday night activities. My friends aren't there. Well, I'm probably not going to go. Mission trip, I don't know. He said, we have a lot of believers that have a cruise ship mentality. They get on, and it's all about me and serving me. He said, actually, the spiritual life of the disciple is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. Sometimes battleships have cramped quarters. People on battleships are working. People on battleships are in, in the middle of a fight, a spiritual war that Scripture talks about. So I'm going to close with this. Is your spiritual life, your walk with Jesus, going to be a cruise ship experience? Or are you going to get on the battleship? Because the churches that are changing the world and the people that are having radical experiences with God are disciples who are on the battleship. And our weapons are the word that we're saturating our mind with, going on missions and praying that God of the harvest raises up laborers. So here's what we're going to do. I'm asking to dim the lights in here because I want you to have quiet space without having to move. Colin's just going to play on the guitar, just instrumentally, and we're not going to take a long time, two minutes maybe. I just want you to be quiet for a second. I'm going to shut up, and I want the Spirit of God to speak to you. What do you do? We're going to put up on the screen, we've got them up here, the three commitments we have so far. If you have a phone during this time of thing, if God leads you to, do the normal that we're calling radical. Then it's time of reflection, and you can log on and make that commitment. I'm going to tell you this. Ministry team's been on me. I, I forgot and I hesitated to tell you earlier. They came up with some great ideas. Because we know this is tough. They said, let's do some things that are like incentive. And they're not a lot because... I mean, there's a lot of you guys, and, you know, it's not like, hey, if you read the Bible all the way through, we're going to send you on a cruise. We can't do that, you know, if 100 people do. We came with some ideas. Like, hey, let's get one of those water bottles everybody has, put the logo on it. Somebody reads the Bible all the way through. When they finish, you go, cool, turn your card over on the bulletin boards out there, and then you've got that water bottle that will be your memory, your keepsake, maybe a tool. And somebody goes, where'd you get that from? I got it because I read the scripture through in 15 months. If you go on a mission trip, the incentive to take away is a t-shirt. It's a radical t-shirt. It might be junior mission trip. It might be high school mission trip. You commit and you go. We're going to throw that t-shirt to you. Just It's a memory of, hey, I did it. I committed I, and I finished. If you pray the Bible all the way through again, they're not huge things. We've got these little keychains. It's a picture of the, the globe. Put your keys on it or not. Put it, up, put it in your desk drawer. It's simple. Say, you know what? I... You're not getting it when you commit. You're getting it when you come back and say, hey, I prayed for all 230 countries. And we turn your name over on that bulletin board out there and you sign the front of it and you take that keychain and say, hey, I, I, I prayed to the God of the harvest. I'm kind of hesitant to say because I don't want anybody to go on a mission trip because they want an extra free T-shirt. I know nobody's praying because they want a keychain. They're just, like I said, memorabilia. But you do it because you want to live the life God's called you to. We're asking our adults to do the same thing. It's not you. There's some college students that came back and they're joining us. They can make these commitments. They can put their names up. Just being a disciple. It's two minutes. You prayerfully consider what your discipled life looks like. Cruise ship or battleship. You make whatever commitments you need to do. If you don't have a phone, on the back table, all three sign-ups. There's a sign-up for Bible. There's a sign-up for missions. There's a sign-up for prayer. You could get up during a time of reflection and go put your name on it. There's devotionals back there. There's Bible reading plans. If you never got one, you're going to commit to that. 
help you out. Do what you need to do. And then David's going to come up and pray for us in a minute.